chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, and you can find it on page 1660 in the Bible that looks like this. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does. Is it over? Okay. Sorry. The guards replied, You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. That's all. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. You see why I asked someone else to read it? It's quite a bit. Thank you, Melissa. You did a wonderful job. Uh, happy Father's Day to everybody, all the dads here. Um, it's also Juneteenth today, uh, maybe a relatively new holiday for some of us to celebrate, but i um, thankful to be able to celebrate that with you. I, I think it's a, a beautiful picture as we celebrate Juneteenth, uh, you know, the story of uh, the slaves being freed in 1863, but some not finding out until 1865, this declaration that their slavery was over uh, and that the injustice that they had suffered would finally uh, be no more. And uh, this holiday helps me to look forward to the ultimate day when Christ will declare that to us, that the, the slavery is over, that our warfare is ended. And so, grateful to celebrate that with you all this morning. Um, well, today as we look at uh, John chapter 7, I'm reminded of a moment when I was in, back in seminary. I had this spiritual formation class. And after class, we had to be split up into groups of four and discuss the topics of the lectures. And at one of these discussion groups, they had every person in the group go around and describe a time when they were thirsty. And so the first guy to share was about my age in my early 20s at the time, and he said, well, when I was a young boy and I used to play soccer out in the sun in Virginia, I remember we'd get so hot, and at the end of the game, I was always really excited for the moment when they would break out the orange slices and the Capri Suns. I remember I was so thirsty when we had that. And then the next person in the group went to share. And this man was probably 10 or 15 years older than us, and he was from Rwanda. And so he started to share his story, and he said, oh, I remember one time during the genocide when my people were attacked, and I had to run. And I ran in the heat and in the sun by myself without any water as 
long as I, I possibly could. I got to the point where I was so exhausted, I couldn't even put one foot in front of the other. And eventually I just collapsed onto the ground, dehydrated, completely worn out. And as I lay there in the dust, he said, a little boy came up to me and brought me a cup of water. And when he shared that story, we all sat there stunned. And then in a few moments later, the first guy said, I'd like to take my answer back. <laughs> I have never been thirsty, as a matter of fact. I think that uh, probably most of us have never had that type of physical thirst, right? We've never experienced that kind of excruciating, painful thirst. But at the center of this passage today, the, the focal point, Jesus is trying to get us to recognize that we actually do have an excruciating thirst, but it's a spiritual thirst. That we have this horrendous spiritual thirst and that he has come, like that little boy who came to my friend with the only water that can quench us. But before we get to that verse... We have to look at the context of this passage because that line, that invitation comes in the midst of this swirl of debate about who Jesus is and can he really be trusted and is he who he really says he is. And so that's how we need to approach it this morning. First, we want to look at the argument around Jesus. And once we do that, we're going to look at the invitation from Jesus, and then finally we're going to look at the life that comes from Jesus. So the argument around Jesus, the invitation of Jesus, and the life that comes from Jesus. That's our outline this morning. So let's first talk about the argument around Jesus. We had a lot to read here. Hopefully you could follow along while we did it. But if you're already a Christian in this room, which I assume uh, quite a few of you are, uh, you might have heard these people debating Jesus doubting Jesus, and you might have thought, those people are kind of foolish. Maybe you heard some of their objections, some of their questions, and you're thinking, how could they be so blind? How could they not see Jesus right there in front of them? How could they not see something that's so obvious? But wait a moment, because the decision to take Jesus at his word is no small decision. The decision to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, is literally the most important decision that anyone will ever make in their lives. It's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And that means it is a decision you can't make hastily. You shouldn't jump to a conclusion. It's something that you should really think about. And in our text, that's what's happening. The people are wrestling. The people are grappling. They're trying to get their heads around this astonishing claim. And what's the claim? Well, it's the same claim that all of Scripture is making. The whole Bible is making. It is the claim that Jesus is not just a good teacher. That Jesus is not simply some interesting and inspiring historical figure, but that he is God himself, 
that he is the God-man, that he, this moment in history that the eternal God took on flesh and died so that you could live forever with him. That's a big claim. And it's good to wrestle with that claim. That is worthy of your time and your effort and your thought and your energy. Over the past few weeks, I've been listening to this podcast called Questioning Christianity. Has anybody else gotten this one? It's pretty new, but it's a series of lectures from Tim Keller uh, that were given back in 2019 to an audience of skeptics in New York City. And the, the, the lectures are very interesting. I, I love the content. But the best part is the end, when he takes 30 minutes or so just to answer questions. And the questions are so fascinating. I love listening to the questions because, honestly, some of the questions, they're tough. They're tough questions. I hear them answer. I'm like, wow, I, I wish I could <laughs> do that. That's impressive. Some of the questions are Hostile. They're, they're angry questions. But I even love those questions because it shows that the people in the crowd, they're thinking. They're, they're wrestling. They're considering the weight of what has been said to them. They're, they're, they're really wondering, well, if Jesus actually is who he said he is, if God really does exist, if the way I'm currently living my life has left me with these deep, unmet longings, what should I do about that? What does it all mean? How should I respond to Christ's claims? I like our passage this morning because I think there is a similar dynamic to the dynamic in those lecture halls in New York City. Jesus in our passage, is in Jerusalem. He's come to the temple courts. If you remember from Robert's sermon last week, he's gone down for the festival of tabernacles. But he came quietly. He didn't come riding in on a horse. He came in trying not to get too much attention. But nevertheless, as he's moving around the temple, as he's talking and as he's teaching, people are paying attention to him. They're starting to wonder, who is this guy? Is this guy, could he possibly be the Messiah? Could Jesus really be the long prophesied Savior that we've all been waiting for? And you heard the debate, right? Melissa read it to us. On the positive side, there are some strong arguments that, yeah, he is the Messiah. In verse 15, they notice that he is extremely educated and well-learned, but they know he hasn't been into any of the major schools. In verse 31, they talk about all of these miracles that he's done. No one denies the miracles, and they say, well, is the, with the Messiah, when he comes, is he going to perform more signs than this man? In verse 41, as they hear him teach, some of the people, they notice how powerful he, his, his words are, and they just outright proclaim, he has to be the Messiah. Listen to him. And even the temple guards who are in that temple all the time, they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. So the crowd, they, they hear his words, they see his actions and his character, and they say, well, this man must be the Messiah. But then you also hear the negative side, right? 
In verse 20, when Jesus says, you guys are trying to kill me. Well, they say, you're demon-possessed. Some people say, this guy's a lunatic. Listen to what he's saying. He's crazy. In verse 27, they say, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. And when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from. In verse 41, they say, he's from Galilee. The Messiah won't be from a nowhere place like Galilee. And then maybe the, the, the toughest argument comes at the end in verse 48. When the, the leaders, the Pharisees, the rulers of the temple, they're speaking down to people. They're saying, look, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, they're the ones that believe. They say the experts don't believe, just the, the idiots. Those are the ones that believe. So there's a lot of debate in this passage. And here's why. Because the claims of Christ are worth debating. The claims of Christ, they should be wrestled with. We need to decide what we believe about what Jesus said. I mean, that's why John wrote this book, isn't it? He says at the end, he wrote this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in his name. You know, I'm officially a middle-aged man now. I told you that, right? Turned 40 a few weeks ago. And as I spend my days walking dogs and kids around my neighborhood, observing other middle-aged men and women going about their lives, I've noticed something when I go to parties, when I go to my kids' sporting events, when I'm sitting in traffic looking around at the other cars. You know what I see? Maybe you see this too. I see a lot of people who have trained themselves to ignore the big questions. I see a lot of people who have just gotten swept up in the monotony of their daily life, who have filled their days with the pursuit of a career, who pack their evenings full of events, who watch Netflix until it's bedtime and take sleeping pills so they can go to bed, so that they don't ever have to be haunted by those quiet moments, so that they never have to consider those big questions of life. But the hard truth is, just because you fill your life with noise, it doesn't mean the questions are going to go away. Someday, you're going to have to answer them. And if there's one thing that I can confidently say to you this morning, it's that the claims of Christ can hold up to the toughest questions. Whatever your objection might be, whatever your intellectual reasonings might be, I would tell you it's up to you to ask those questions and find out if there are answers, to examine them. Because if God really did come down to earth to save you for your sin, that's something you need to find out. So we see in this passage there's an argument around Jesus and it's an argument that you and I have to participate in. It's an argument that you and I can't ignore. There's an argument around Jesus. The second thing, though, that we also see is there's an invitation. Let's look at the invitation of Jesus. 
Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. As a follower of Christ, that line just, it makes my heart jump, right? That's, that's just, I love it. I love hearing it. I think that instinctively, we can kind of make out what Jesus means right there, can't we? Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. But let me just tell you a little bit more about the background to help you understand. Because I think knowing the setting, we do gain some insight into things that, that normally we miss when we don't, we don't know some of the history. Right? I told you already that Jesus is at the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay? This is something that in the Christian church we usually don't celebrate anymore. But it is a, an important Jewish festival. It's a festival that is a week-long celebration. It's a big party. And during this party, what people are, are celebrating, they're celebrating God's provision. They're celebrating that God is a God who provides for his people. And they remember all the way back to when he brought the people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and they dwelt in the wilderness, and in all that time in the wilderness, God provided. He provided them with food and water and shelter, and so they build these little temporary uh, booths, they call them, and they live in these booths, it's kind of a party, you know, camping outside and remembering that God provided for, these, for their people. And then during this week-long celebration, at the very end, on the seventh day, they would have this big ceremony. And at this ceremony, they would fill pitchers up with water, they would go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would have this procession back into the temple, carrying these, these cisterns of water with them, the high priest leading the way. And while they do, people are blowing trumpets. While they do, people are singing the psalms. It's this joyous celebration, remembering the provision of the Lord. And then they pour out the water on top of the altar. And as they do, they sing in Hebrew, with joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. This whole ceremony, the whole procession, is reminding people of those days when not only did God provide water in the desert, but it's looking forward to the days when God promises that one day he's going to pour out his spirit on all people. And here, in that moment, on that day, as that ceremony is taking place, Jesus stands up and he says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. Wow. Can you imagine? Jesus is making a promise here. Jesus is making a promise to provide. As people celebrate God who is their provider, he is, he is making this promise of, of a soul-nourishing provision for everyone who would come. 
in this moment that commemorates God's faithfulness to his promises, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all the promises. As they're singing with joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. He is saying, I am the true well of salvation. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And those aren't abstract words, folks. Those aren't just words that that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, long lost to history. No, he is still speaking those words today. He is speaking them right now. He's speaking them to you. What Jesus is saying in this moment is he's saying he can meet your needs. He can answer your heart's deepest questions. He can satisfy your deepest longings. What if you really believe that? What if you really believe that today? What if Jesus was your go-to for relief when you felt the pain of this world? What if the cool waters of his salvation today were poured out over your anxiety, over your fear, over your defensiveness, over your need for control, over your marriage, over your worries about your children, over your finances, over your health, over your relationships. You know, so much of our existence, we spend it in the pursuit of temporary things, in the pursuit of things that that don't last. We spend our lives drinking from these waters that always leave us thirsting, don't we? These things that promise to make us happy, that promise to fill us up, but they never deliver, do they? They never do and they can't. Because only Jesus has the water that can truly quench our thirst. I don't know what to say. The the moment is so vivid, isn't it? This huge crowd, this big procession, all this noise, all this singing, the water dripping off the altar. And in the midst of it all, Jesus is calling out, I'm right here. Come to me. Don't waste another moment of your life. I have the real provision that you need. I've got the real stuff. Come to me and drink. That's the invitation of Jesus. That's the invitation to you right now. But that's not all. We see here as well that 
that it's not just the invitation of Jesus, but, but we read about the life that comes from Jesus. This is the third point, that there is a life that comes from Jesus. And this is probably the part that gets me the most as I read it. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. To me, I think that's what's missing most often from the church. You know, our particular slice of Christianity, uh, American evangelicalism, it is a consumer-oriented version of Christianity. It is a consumer-oriented faith. And what I mean by that is we are often raised up and discipled and taught to come and take. To come and get what we want. That we go to church and we get the things we need. We go to Jesus and we get the things we need for ourselves. We consume our faith like we consume everything else in the world. But what is the picture that Jesus gives of a person who is drinking from the well of his salvation? What is that person like? What does he compare them to? A river, right? A river. The person who's drinking from the well of of life, from, from Jesus himself, they are a river of the Holy Spirit's thirst quenching grace and mercy and hope and peace flowing out into the world. And I think if we're being honest, we've got to admit That is not what most people are seeing out of the church these days. A river of grace and mercy and hope and peace and kindness and love. No, what do they see flowing out of the church? Culture wars? Judgment? What we see flowing out of the church is anger and hostility and and a fear of the world around us. I was reading an article the other day where this, this Christian guy, a pastor, I think, was, was writing this article where he said, you know, yes, of course, Jesus says that we're supposed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but, but the church is under attack. And, and desperate times call for desperate measures. It's time to fight back. Does that sound like Jesus? Did Jesus say, love your neighbors as you love yourself, unless it's desperate times? You think Jesus lived in desperate times? You think when Jesus was dying on the cross and praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Do you think that was a desperate time? But what did he do? Even then, Jesus loved radically. Even then, Jesus poured out grace and mercy instead of fear and anger. And folks, that is what an encounter with Jesus will do to you. I think the reason 
the church today often seems so far off target is because we have not learned how to drink deeply from the love of Christ. We have not learned how to go to him and be fed what we need. We've not learned how to drink until the water flows back out of us. How does that happen? Well, the water flows out of us when we start to realize that actually we are the hostile ones. That we are the ones that deserve the wrath. That we were the ones that deserved the desperate measures. But instead, Jesus gave us his mercy. That's the gospel, right? The living water flows when you realize that that even now, after all these years of following him, after all these years of coming to church every week, you are still the faithless one. The one who says one thing and does another. Who professes faith on Sunday and then falls into lust and greed and gluttony and selfishness and comes right back the next week. And still... Jesus offers you his grace and mercy this morning. Every moment he comes and he says, come to me and drink. I'm the only one with the real water. Don't be fooled anymore by all that other stuff. You're thirsty. You've gotten yourself dehydrated and exhausted in the pursuit of all the world's lies, trying to build your own kingdom. He says, come, repent, receive my mercy. He says, take a big gulp, because you're a big sinner. But I'm an even bigger Savior. Folks, this verse, it's a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. When the well of Christ's grace really hits a person's heart, when that happens, it doesn't stop with them. It continues to flow. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who it just seems like grace and mercy and love and kindness and peace are just always flowing from them all the time? Do you know anybody who's a river? You know, I have a friend like that. I got to speak to him on the phone this week. And I'll tell you, I was just so disarmed by our conversation. After I got off the phone with him, I just realized that that he had just poured water all over me, (laughs) you know. And you know why he's a river? Because he is a man who knows how much he's been forgiven. He is a man who has let the Lord show him the depths of his brokenness, the depths of his sin. And because of that, he just has so much grace for other people. And he has so much honesty about himself and no fear. And when he prays, when he prays, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he means it because because he prays, Lord, if you can forgive me, then I can forgive them. And not only does he forgive, but he he loves after that. And when he encounters a person who's angry, he doesn't first see their behavior, he sees their wounds. 
And he has compassion for them. And he approaches them with love. The man is a river because he drinks deeply from the living water because he really knows the love of Christ. He's a river. What about you? What about you? You know, you might be in the place this morning, I know some of you, but not all of you, you might be the, in the place where you still just have a lot of questions. You're not sure you can believe any of this stuff. And I want to tell you, that's okay. Ask the questions, though. Has anything else in this earth succeeded at quenching your thirst? Ask the questions. You might be at the place where you say, Pastor, I do believe this, but my life's a wreck. I have hurt some of the people I love the most. I have been judgmental. I have been angry. I have been so faithless. I am not a river. I am a, I am a dry bed, and I've got a mouthful of sand. If that's you today, well, I've got good news. Jesus, he's given you the invitation right now. Confess your sins. Lay him before him. Come to him and drink. It's really what we all need. It's the only hope for any of us. It's the only hope for me. So let's do it. Let's all come and let's drink from his grace and mercy today. Because, folks, this is the real stuff. You know, we had a big event the other night. We had a bunch of people show up for a bingo night. It was a lot of fun. But I'm going to tell you, there is no strategy there are no events, there's no bingo nights or kids weeks or small groups or programs that we can do that are going to reach this world for Christ. But you know what will? Ordinary people who turn into rivers. Ordinary people who are pouring his grace out into the world. Guys, that's the good stuff. That's where the power is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I hope as my voice is going out this morning, it still was able to go out as well. But I pray, Lord, that your spirit would become a river welling up to eternal life for all of us. Lord, we're all thirsty. We've all drunk from the wrong waters. Lord, would we come to you? Would you nourish us in this moment? Would you feed us? Would you feed our souls? And then would you send us out so that we could go and nourish others? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.